Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, March 20th, 2023, the 789th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So let's just briefly start where we left off last week, which is with the COVID ridiculousness still flowing through the public conversation. It's just so silly. I can't help but share it because I love it so much. I follow a man named Amish Adalja, who is at Johns Hopkins, and I followed him ever since the very beginning of the pandemic, except for, of course, those two years that I was banned. Because he was a guest on Sam Harris's podcast. I listened to his podcast episode from March 11th, 2020, where he talked about how COVID wasn't all that dangerous, could be treated with hydroxychloroquine, had a very low infection fatality rate, and it wasn't something to worry about all that much. But here we find ourselves three years later, and he is still pumping up the fear. Now, last week, it was reported to us that getting poor sleep actually harms the effectiveness of the vaccine. So if you're not sleeping well enough, then the vaccine just can't do the magic it's meant to be doing. If you're not getting the proper sleep, then your vaccine is going to be reduced in its effectiveness. It will not allow you to build the proper immunity 
So if you feel like you're not sleeping enough, the truth is when your vaccine doesn't work, it's your fault. So just keep in mind that if you get bad sleep, your vaccine's not going to work that well. Well, Adalja came out with a tweet this morning citing a CBS News article and said nearly a third of Americans say they've experienced sleep disturbances since COVID began, according to a 2022 survey from the American Academy of Sleep Science. He said, I think that is far from establishing a causal relationship, though in some cases it may be. The report is about how long COVID gives you what they're calling COVID somnia. So long COVID causes bad sleep, which causes a reduction in the effectiveness of your vaccine. Now, if you want to complete the circle, then you might also realize that the most heavily vaccinated are the people who get the most COVID and have the worst results and also die. And there's at least some good reason to believe that long COVID is just the enduring problems that the heavily vaccinated have that are then being attributed to COVID and not the vaccine. So if you take the circle in full, the vaccine causes long COVID, which causes poor sleep, which causes the vaccines not to work. And so that means you can just drop off a couple of pieces of that causal chain and realize that COVID vaccines cause COVID vaccines not to work. Amazing, isn't it? But that wasn't all Adalja had to bless us with today. He also tweeted this vaccine makers prep bird flu shot for humans just in case rich nations lock in supplies. And it's an article from Reuters. Some of the world's leading makers of flu vaccines say they could make hundreds of millions of bird flu shots for humans within months if a new strain of avian influenza ever jumps across the species divide. Our current outbreak of avian flu, known as H5N1 clade 2.3.4.4b, has killed record numbers of birds and infected mammals. Human cases, however, remain very rare, and global health officials have said risk of transmission between humans is still low, and you can trust them to be right. Executives at three vaccine manufacturers, GSK PLC, Moderna, and CSL Sequiris, owned by CSL Limited, told Reuters they are already developing or about to test sample human vaccines that better match the circulating subtype as a precautionary measure against a future pandemic. Others, like Sanofi, said they stand ready to begin production if needed with existing H5N1 vaccine strains in stock. So essentially, the people that may decide we need another pandemic have also decided that if we need the other pandemic, we're also going to need to sell some more vaccines to say that we are treating that pandemic because it turns out that people just aren't buying our COVID vaccines anymore. So if you're a regular listener, you'll know that I did not record a show on Friday because Friday afternoon I did a long in-person interview with Garrett Ziegler, the founder of the Marco Polo Research Group and the author of the report on the Biden laptop. You can find that interview on Rumble, on Badlands Rumble. I'm going to release the audio of that on this podcast, maybe over the weekend. And as often happens, the one day you take a day off is the day that all sorts of interesting things happen. There was a major Twitter files release on Friday. I'm going to get to that in a couple of minutes. But also on Friday, we got news that the Manhattan District Attorney may be close to indicting Donald Trump on charges that no one understands. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago, I read on this podcast a March 9th article from the New York Times talking about how Alvin Bragg was working toward an indictment of Donald Trump, and he was basically going to use a novel legal theory. He was going to put together a couple of questionable, at best, misdemeanors, whose statute of limitations had expired, 
and he was going to combine them into a felony and then attempt to prosecute and imprison Donald Trump for the commission of this felony that he has invented based on two misdemeanors he also can't convict Donald Trump for. Even the very serious Wall Street Journal thinks there might be something wrong with this, and the editorial board wrote this yesterday, the headline, Alvin Bragg's political charge against Donald Trump. Alvin Bragg may actually do it. The Manhattan District Attorney is, by all media accounts, preparing to indict Donald Trump for failing to account properly for hush money paid to his alleged mistress, unleashing who knows what political furies. Mr. Trump said Saturday he expects to be arrested on Tuesday and urged his supporters to protest, 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 cry the beloved country. It's impossible to overstate Mr. Bragg's bad judgment here. Perhaps the local Democratic DA has discovered some new proof of criminal behavior. But based on the public evidence so far, he would be resurrecting a seven-year-old case that even federal prosecutors refuse to bring to court. As we wrote last week, the charge would appear to be falsifying business records to pay the mistress, Stormy Daniels. That is typically a misdemeanor in New York State, though Mr. Bragg might bump it up to a felony by claiming the falsification was to cover up an illegal campaign finance donation to Mr. Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. So he didn't have the affair. Even Stormy Daniels says the affair never happened. But what they're going after is a payment of $130,000 that Michael Cohen made to Stormy Daniels while Michael Cohen was on retainer. And the claim is that Trump reimbursed Cohen for that payment with campaign funds, thus making it a violation of campaign finance laws. A key prosecution witness would be Michael Cohen, Mr. Trump's former lawyer, who is an admitted felon. Mr. Trump might claim in his defense that his payments were made to shield the affair from his wife. He has publicly denied an affair with Ms. Daniels. Proving intent to break the law will not be easy. Also, why are they even bringing up that he was trying to shield it from his wife? There's no there there. That's the problem. So Mr. Bragg may indict a former president for the first time in American history based on the weakest of charges. He would subject the country to a trial that would be a media circus for the ages, and he would do so running the risk that a single juror could block a guilty verdict and validate Mr. Trump's claim that this is a political prosecution. Yes, we know in America, no one is above the law, but prosecutors use their discretion every day not to bring charges for any number of reasons. Mr. Bragg came into office vowing not to charge numerous nonviolent crimes against public order. And again, you have to love how the Wall Street Journal is just throwing a bone to all the child brains out there who think that Donald Trump is actually a criminal by saying no one is above the law. It is being proven in real life right now that according to the regime's justice system, Everyone in the regime is above the law. The law actually only applies to people who aren't serving the regime. So there's a lot of Americans right now who are effectively above the law, like, for instance, the fake president, Joe Biden, and everyone who helped install him in office. The rules, you see, only apply to you. The prosecution of a former president who is again a candidate for the White House is inherently fraught with political ramifications. A wise prosecutor must consider the potential harm to confidence in the rule of law in bringing a prosecution that at least half the country will deem political. A charge against a former president or current candidate must be for serious offenses with indisputable evidence. All the more so given that Mr. Bragg is acting here after being criticized for not bringing a case against Mr. Trump on charges related to the finances of the Trump organization. Two prosecutors quit his office after Mr. Bragg made that decision. One of the prosecutors, Mark Pomerantz, wrote a highly critical book that the media has celebrated. Is Mr. Bragg now wilting under the media and political pressure? We also know that Democrats want to run against Mr. Trump in 2024. They think he is the easiest candidate to defeat, and so they want to keep Mr. Trump in the political spotlight. 
An indictment of Mr. Trump now would come as the 2024 presidential race begins in earnest and would put other Republican candidates on the spot. Trump supporters are already demanding that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a likely opponent, refuse to extradite Mr. Trump to New York in defiance of the law. And again, let's examine the framing here. This is the Wall Street Journal, fully regime, fully anti-Trump, probably going to be all in for Ron. And naturally, this has been the framing of all of conservative Inc. and the GOP establishment online. Democrats actually want to run against Trump because they think it'll be easy to defeat him. There is no reason in the world to believe that that's true. It's just something that they say to quote unquote conservatives in the establishment so that they have it reaffirmed that Donald Trump is weak and that there is a better choice out there. Of course, all of this ignores the fact that the elections are completely and obviously stolen, and it is no compliment to Ron DeSantis to say that he could win in a rigged system. That would just be the regime placing DeSantis in power and telling Republican voters out there, hey, everything's fine. You see that our elections are legitimate. Just move on. And the regime is going to keep implementing their program. Mr. Trump's call for protests are irresponsible as well as against his self-interest. The smart play would be to follow the law while claiming his innocence. If there is violence amid protests, Mr. Trump will get much of the blame. But Mr. Bragg and his partisan cheerleaders will have touched off the whirlwind. And again, the assumption, the framing here is that Donald Trump supporters are violent. They are trying to drum up another January 6th with all this, and that should be obvious. Immediately, people like Rachel Maddow and the MSNBC crew picked up on this on Friday or Saturday because there is nothing that they would love more than another January 6th so that they can re-justify their hate movement as the January 6th very violent insurrection narrative collapses completely. We don't know the political impact of indicting Mr. Trump, but it's possible it would help his candidacy. Republicans might rally to his defense, even after millions had concluded after the GOP's midterm disappointment that it is time for a new nominee. No, millions were sold that idea and they listened to the television as they always do. That's what the Republican establishment is. It's no different than the Democrat establishment. You might think that those people are on your side, but they clearly are not. They've been covering up for election fraud for two and a half years because they do not want to support Donald Trump. That is only due to social incentives. It's not due to the rightness or wrongness of claims on election fraud because, of course, they haven't checked. Most of those people went fully along with the covid narrative. Most of them have mask selfies online. They went along with the vaccine narrative. They told you about all the studies, what the science says. And it turns out that they were absolutely wrong about all of that. But people still listen to them and people still accept their framing of these issues. So they're going to keep using it for as long as they can. The framing of the midterms as a legitimate election and a midterm disappointment caused by Trump is again totally false and ignorant of election fraud. It has the assumption that our elections are safe, are secure, and accurately reflect the will of every individual voter in America as the basis for the midterm disappointment. You have to believe that the elections are giving the proper results to call the midterms a loss and disappointment and then take the added step of connecting that problem to Donald Trump, where his endorsement record speaks for itself. He was something like 232 and 20. Democrats have used legal investigations and impeachment against Mr. Trump for six years, and each time it failed to knock him out. As we have argued all along, the proper way to defeat Mr. Trump is through the ballot box. Oh, so brave, so principled, Wall Street Journal. Hey, let me ask you a question, Wall Street Journal editorial board, being the very serious intellectuals you are. Why do the Democrats and why does the establishment keep trying to remove Donald Trump in 
countless ways that have nothing to do with the ballot box if they're not worried about facing Donald Trump in elections. In fact, why are they stealing elections if Donald Trump would be the easiest candidate for them to beat? Why are they censoring Americans for years? Why are they calling it the big lie? Why are they saying that whoever contests the elections is a domestic terrorist if Donald Trump is the easiest one for them to beat? Well, let's finish out this gem from the Wall Street Journal. As a provincial progressive from New York City, Mr. Bragg may not understand the political forces he is unleashing. He might want to consult the satirical wisdom of the Babylon Bee headline on Twitter. Manhattan DA announces plan to get Trump elected in 2024. And yes, they are only going to increase his popularity and further erode any remaining sense among Americans that the justice system is legitimate in any way. I've said this many times, but if this was some small Central American nation or Southeast Asian nation, some small country in Eastern Europe, we would see all of this for exactly what it is. A regime puppet was installed through a completely fraudulent election and is now using the force of the state to oppress his political opposition and imprison political opponents. Those are the characteristics of an authoritarian dictatorship and a banana republic. And we just pretend none of that is true because it's happening here in America. The proof that they don't believe they can legitimately defeat Donald Trump at the ballot box is all of this other stuff they're doing. Now, for some historical context, Jack Posobiec highlighted this article from 2013 in U.S. News, and he wrote, the Obama campaign broke the law on millions in undisclosed donations, paid a massive fine, and it was never talked about again. So Donald Trump is being pursued based on some novel legal theory about campaign finance and this other issue that itself is a fake issue. And then we have the real thing that no one ever pays attention to. Just quickly, U.S. News and World Report, Obama campaign fined big for hiding donors, keeping illegal donations. This is January 7th, 2013. So just a couple months after Obama defeated Mitt Romney. Barack Obama's presidential campaign has been fined $375,000 by the Federal Election Commission for violating federal disclosure laws, Politico reports. An FEC audit of Obama for America's 2008 records found the committee failed to disclose millions of dollars in contributions and dragged its feet in refunding millions more in excess contributions. The resulting fine, one of the largest ever handed down by the FEC, is the result of a failure to disclose or improperly disclosing thousands of contributions to Obama for America during the then senator's 2008 presidential run documents show. The article goes on and I'd encourage you to read it if you want the rest of the details. Now, a letter has been sent to Alvin Bragg today from Jim Jordan, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in Congress, Brian Steele, the chairman of the House Committee on Administration, and James Comer, who's the chairman of the Committee on Oversight and Accountability. And here is that letter. Dear Mr. Bragg, you are reportedly about to engage in an unprecedented abuse of prosecutorial authority. The indictment of a former president of the United States and current declared candidate for that office. This indictment comes after years of your office searching for a basis, any basis on which to bring charges, ultimately settling on a novel legal theory untested anywhere in the country and one that federal authorities decline to pursue. If these reports are accurate, your actions will erode confidence in the even-handed application of justice and unalterably interfere in the course of the 2024 presidential election. In light of the serious consequences of your actions, we expect that you will testify about what plainly appears to be a politically motivated prosecutorial decision. So they are claiming right off the bat that this constitutes election interference. 
The New York County District Attorney's Office has been investigating President Trump since at least 2018, looking for some legal theory on which to bring charges. The facts surrounding the impending indictment have been known for years. Michael Cohen, President Trump's disgraced former lawyer, pleaded guilty over four years ago to charges based on the same facts at issue in the impending indictment. By July 2019, however, federal prosecutors determined that no additional people would be charged alongside Cohen. Now, in the words of one legal scholar, you are attempting to, quote, shoehorn the same case with identical facts into a new prosecution, resurrecting a so-called zombie case against President Trump. Even The Washington Post quoted legal experts as calling your actions unusual because, quote, prosecutors have repeatedly examined the long established details, but decided not to pursue charges. The legal theory underlying your reported prosecution appears to be tenuous and untested. Bringing charges for falsifying business records is ordinarily a misdemeanor subject to a two-year statute of limitations, which would have expired long ago. State law, however, allows a district attorney to, quote, elevate nominal misdemeanor conduct, end quote, to a felony charge if the, quote, intent to defraud includes an intent to commit another crime or to aid or conceal the commission thereof, end quote. Such a showing would extend the statute of limitations to five years, which would likely expire soon and thus explains your rush to indictment. The only potential speculated crime that could be alleged here would be a violation of campaign finance law, according to one scholar, a charge that the Justice Department has already declined to bring. In addition to the novel and untested legal theory, your star witness for this prosecution has a serious credibility problem, a problem that you have reportedly recognized. This case relies heavily on the testimony of Michael Cohen, a convicted perjurer with a demonstrable prejudice against President Trump. Cohen pleaded guilty to lying to Congress in 2018. In 2019, when he testified before Democrats on the House Oversight Committee to aid their fruitless investigation into President Trump, Cohen lied again six times. Cohen has been vocal about his deeply personal animus toward President Trump. Under these circumstances, there is no scenario in which Cohen could be fairly considered an unbiased and credible witness. The inference from the totality of these facts is that your impending indictment is motivated by political calculations. In January 2022, soon after you took office, you expressed doubts about President Trump's case and suspended the investigation. This decision caused two of your top investigators, Kerry Dunn and Mark Pomerantz, to resign in protest and publicly denounce your work. Pomerantz, in particular, heavily criticized you for declining to bring charges at that time, and Dunn and others are now weighing ways to bar President Trump from holding future office. Pomerantz has published a book in the past month excoriating you for not aggressively prosecuting President Trump. The Washington Post reported that you were deeply stung by this criticism. The facts of this matter have not changed since 2018, and no new witnesses have emerged. The Justice Department examined the facts in 2019 and opted not to pursue further prosecutions at that time. Even still, according to reporting, the investigation gained some momentum this year, and your office convened a new grand jury in January to evaluate the issue. The only intervening factor, it appears, was President Trump's announcement that he would be a candidate for president in 2024. Your decision to pursue such a politically motivated prosecution while adopting progressive criminal justice policies that allow career criminals to run the streets of Manhattan requires congressional scrutiny about how public safety funds appropriated by Congress are implemented by local law enforcement agencies. In addition, your apparent decision to pursue criminal charges where federal authorities decline to do so requires oversight to inform potential legislative reforms about the delineation of prosecutorial authority between federal and local officials. Finally, because the circumstances of this matter stem in part from special counsel Mueller's investigation, Congress may consider legislative reforms to the authorities of special counsels and their relationships with other prosecuting entities.
Accordingly, to advance our oversight, please produce the following documents and information for the period January 1st, 2017 to the present. So they want information spanning over six years here. It's also worth noting this interesting little snippet about the Mueller investigation and about the way special counsel investigations are handled in terms of prosecutions being brought by other parties. That matters because there are multiple current special counsel investigations out there, not only for Donald Trump related issues, but also for Joe Biden. So this is what the various committee chairmen in the House GOP are asking from Bragg. All documents and communications between or among the New York County District Attorney's Office and the U.S. Department of Justice, its component entities or other federal law enforcement agencies referring or relating to your office's investigation of President Donald Trump. All documents and communications sent or received by former employees, Carrie Dunn and Mark Pomerantz, referring or relating to President Donald Trump and all documents and communications referring or relating to the New York County District Attorney's Office's receipt and use of federal funds. In addition, your testimony is necessary to advance our oversight and to inform potential legislative reforms. We therefore ask that you testify in a transcribed interview about these matters as soon as possible. Please provide this information and contact committee staff to schedule your transcribed interview as soon as possible, but not later than 10 a.m. on March 23rd, 2023. So that's Thursday of this week. Pursuant to Rule X of the Rules of the House of Representatives, the Committee on the Judiciary has jurisdiction over criminal justice matters in the United States. The Committee on House Administration has jurisdiction over matters concerning federal elections. The Committee on Oversight and Accountability may examine any matter at any time. So he's making clear the legitimate authority that each of these various committees have in requesting materials and testimony from Alvin Bragg. Now, there's been a lot of talk about what the response from Ron DeSantis would be and whether he was going to be involved in any sort of extradition procedure to move Donald Trump from Florida to New York to face the law. And he spent a couple of days not responding. Today, he made a statement about all of this. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Megan from the Florida Standard, uh, we wanted to know what your thoughts are on the rumored Trump indictment and if you have any role in it, um, if charges are brought on him, will you have any role in extradition to New York? Thank so you. I've seen rumors swirl. I have not seen any facts uh, yet, and so I don't know what's going to happen. But I do know this, the, the Manhattan District Attorney is a Soros-funded prosecutor. And so he, like other Soros-funded prosecutors, they weaponize their office to impose a political agenda on society at the expense of the rule of law and public safety. He has downgraded over 50% of the felonies to misdemeanors. He says he doesn't want to even have jail time for the vast, vast majority of crimes. And what we've seen in Manhattan is we've seen the, sky, the, the crime rate go up and we've seen citizens become less safe. And so you're talking about this situation with, and look, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to, to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is that if you have a prosecutor who is ignoring crimes happening every single day in his jurisdiction, and he chooses to go back many, many years ago uh, to try to use something about porn star hush money payments, you know, that's an example of pursuing a political agenda and weaponizing the office. And um, I think that that's fundamentally wrong. I also think it's important to point out when you're talking about these Soros-funded prosecutors, yes, they may do a high-profile politicized prosecution, uh, and that's bad, but the real victims are ordinary New Yorkers, ordinary Americans in all these different jurisdictions that they get victimized every day because of the reckless political agenda that these Soros DAs bring to their job. They ignore crime 
and they empower criminals, and that hurts people. It hurts a lot of people every single day. The Soros district attorneys are a menace to society, and I'm just glad that I'm the only governor in the country that's actually removed one from office during my tenure. <laughs> And in terms of um, our, 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 we are not involved in this, won't be involved in this. Uh, I have no interest in getting involved in some type of manufactured circus by some Soros DA, okay? He's trying to do a political spectacle. He's trying to virtue signal for his base. Uh, I've got real issues I got to deal with here in the state of Florida. We're obviously shutting down uh, CBDC, which is important. We've got so many things pending in front of the legislature. Uh, I've got to spend my time on issues that actually matter to people. Uh, I can't spend my time uh, worrying about uh, things, things of that nature. So, so we're not going to be involved in it in any way. Um, I'm fighting for Floridians, and I'm fighting back against Biden. That's what I do every single day. So it's an interesting statement. It's very weak in its defense of Donald Trump, where it could have been much stronger. But if you're looking at this with the understanding that this could all just be a potential kayfabe operation, just a narrative and optical ploy to create distance between Trump and DeSantis, well, then DeSantis doesn't need to make the strong defense of Donald Trump. He does go hard after Soros prosecutors. And that's going to make headlines. This little response is going to be seen by a lot of people. It calls attention to the fact that Soros has spent all this money installing district attorneys and attorneys general and people in positions all across this country. All of that is very good. For whatever reason, he made multiple jokes about hush money payments to porn stars. Again, that part is false. Donald Trump did not have an affair with Stormy Daniels. He said it from the beginning. Stormy Daniels has said it. There's no proof of it anywhere. And this issue was dropped in the minds of most people a long time ago. People can understand why it's being brought back up. Ron DeSantis says he doesn't want to have any involvement because he's focused only on Floridians. Donald Trump is a Floridian and Ron, as governor of Florida, may be called upon to extradite Donald Trump to New York. I mean, that's the public narrative. I don't think any of this is going to happen, by the way. I also don't really think that Trump is going to get indicted, though he might. It's possible that we don't need the actual indictment because the required narrative effect is already happening. It's already baked in now because the story about Trump's indictment was the talk of the weekend. People have, by and large, already reaffirmed their position on whether or not it's a good idea to arrest Donald Trump for political reasons. And it should be noted that all of the people who want Donald Trump arrested also use Vladimir Putin arresting his political opponents as proof that Vladimir Putin is an authoritarian dictator. And naturally, none of those people realize that what they're saying now could come back around to bite them as it basically always does. They are laying down precedent in principle for the future arrests of people like Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. If and when those come, they'll be on the basis of actual crimes against this country and against humanity. Now, as you might imagine, Donald Trump has responded quite a bit to all of this on Truth Social. I'm going to go through a few of his posts from over the weekend. On Saturday, he said, it's time. We are a nation in steep decline, being led into World War III by a crooked politician who doesn't even know he's alive, but who is surrounded by evil and sinister people who, based on their actions on defunding the police, destroying our military, open borders, no voter ID, inflation, raising taxes, and much more, can only hate our now-failing USA. We just can't allow this anymore. They're killing our nation as we sit back and watch. We must save America. Protest, protest, protest. And he continues in a second post, 
Now illegal leaks from a corrupt and highly political Manhattan district attorney's office, which has allowed new records to be set in violent crime and whose leader is funded by George Soros, indicate that with no crime being able to be proven and based on an old and fully debunked by numerous other prosecutors fairy tale, the far and away leading Republican candidate and former president of the United States of America will be arrested on Tuesday of next week protest, take our nation back. And so much like the Mar-a-Lago raid, Donald Trump is the one who's publicizing this law enforcement action to be taken against him or not. We shall see. Now, I mentioned that these protests are being drummed up by the media and others as a potential new January 6th event so that they can continue to go after their political opponents. Jack Posobiec had dinner with Donald Trump on Thursday night, and Posobic posted this over the weekend. We protest with calling out of work. We protest with truckers not running. We protest with bank runs, and we will win. Posobic noted this morning that there was no talk of the indictment at their dinner on Thursday, and he says that something must have changed on Friday. But in terms of the protest, it's interesting and it's worth remembering that Going out in the streets and causing havoc like BLM Antifa domestic terrorists is not the only way to protest. We've seen all sorts of forms of protest over the last couple of years. You know, he mentions the truckers and the trucker rallies and people calling in for a day off from work. But the bank run thing is especially interesting because we are told there are another 186 banks on the verge of collapse. Steve Bannon has been out there talking about how the banks are insolvent. There is something much bigger going on here. And a Trump arrest would suck all of the oxygen out of the room. That would be the only thing people are talking about. So it provides an incredible distraction. It's also worth noting that Trump bringing all of this up and continuing to talk about it is creating a lot of anticipation for tomorrow, for Tuesday. And if it turns out that no arrest happens, there are going to be some people out there going pretty crazy, and that will be hilarious. Trump continued to post on Truth Social. He wrote, can you imagine the great New York City Police Department, correctly referred to as New York City's finest, who for the first and only time in history endorsed a president, me, and honored me as man of the year, having to defend and protect the defunders and cop haters of the radical left that want to put their greatest champion and friend in prison for a crime that doesn't exist. All the while, the Soros-backed DA allows murderers and other violent criminals to freely roam the sidewalks of New York. He went on. It is the district attorney of Manhattan who is breaking the law by using the fake and fully discredited testimony, even by the Southern District of New York, of a convicted liar, felon, and jailbird, Michael Cohen, to incredibly persecute, prosecute, and indict a former president and now leading by far presidential candidate for a crime that doesn't exist. Alvin Bragg should be held accountable for the crime of interference in a presidential election. And remember, that's exactly what was mentioned in the congressional letter as well. Election interference, Soros prosecutor. George Soros is, in essence, a complete and total foreigner to the United States. This could be, if you put those two things together, foreign interference in an American election. And we know that Trump has executive orders meant to deal with specifically that. Trump went on, the lead prosecutor for the corrupt Manhattan DA's office, worked as a lawyer for crooked Hillary Clinton and her law firm, left this Democrat firm, with others to volunteer to get Donald Trump at the DA's office for free. He quit in a huff when DA Bragg said there was no case here. He then unethically and illegally wrote and published a book about the case while it was going on. This is unheard of stuff. The case is now completely compromised and reports are that Mark Pomerantz is in trouble. Trump continued in a later post, just out. District Attorney Alvin Bragg received in excess of $1 million from the radical left enemy of Trump, George Soros. Bragg is also very close to the Clinton campaign. 
Republicans and conservatives are more united than they have been in many years. Even Democrats don't like what's going on with the Manhattan DA. This is a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. And just one more. There was no misdemeanor here either. There was no crime, period. All other of the many Democrat law enforcement officers that looked at it took a pass. So did Cy Vance and so did Bragg. But then much later, he changed his mind. Gee, I wonder why. Prosecutorial misconduct and interference with an election investigate the investigators. And so we'll see what comes of this tomorrow. My sense is that we may not get that indictment. I don't think we're going to get an arrest. But if somehow that does happen, Trump has basically already stuck a pin in their little arrest balloon and it has flown around the room as it goes flat all weekend. You can imagine how much differently this would have played out if the first any of us heard about this arrest was when he was actually arrested. The story would be completely different. He's previewed this and now the country has already had the discussion about the legitimacy of this effort to arrest him before it even happens. If it does, if it happens, it will now be completely anticlimactic and no one's really going to buy it. It'll also be interesting to see if there is anything that happens along the lines of protest, protest, protest. I don't think it's going to be out in the streets. I don't see any rush to do that from our side. It's possible that we may see some action from Antifa or Antifa types potentially dressed as Trump supporters trying to cause havoc and create another J6 narrative. And there have been steel barriers like stanchions put up outside the Manhattan criminal court ostensibly in preparation for some sort of protest there tomorrow. It kind of has the same feel as when they put up the security fencing around the Capitol before Biden's recent State of the Union. So let's switch gears over to the latest Twitter files. This is from Friday, Twitter files number 19 by Matt Taibbi, the great COVID-19 lie machine. Stanford, the Virality Project, and the censorship of quote-unquote true stories. The release of Dr. Anthony Fauci's spring 2020 emails has been used to exacerbate trust in Dr. Fauci, increased distrust in Fauci's expert guidance, reports of vaccinated individuals contracting COVID-19 anyway, natural immunity, suggesting COVID-19 leaked from a lab, and even worrisome jokes. All were characterized as potential violations or disinformation events by the Virality Project, a sweeping cross-platform effort to monitor billions of social media posts by Stanford University, federal agencies, and a slew of often state-funded NGOs. Just before Michael Schellenberger and I testified in the House last week, Virality Project emails were found in the Twitter files describing, quote, stories of true vaccine side effects as actionable content. And that means content that fits their qualifications for what should be censored. We've since learned the Virality Project in 2021 worked with government to launch a pan-industry monitoring plan for COVID-related content. At least six major internet platforms were onboarded to the same JIRA ticketing system, daily sending millions of items for review. And JIRA is that internal platform that they have in these tech companies so that they can discuss this sort of thing. It's like proprietary software that they use amongst themselves. Though Virality Project reviewed content on a mass scale for Twitter, Google and YouTube, Facebook and Instagram, Medium, TikTok and Pinterest, it knowingly targeted true material and legitimate political opinion while often being factually wrong itself. This story is important for two reasons. One, as Orwellian proof of concept, the Virality Project was a smash success. 
government, academia, and an oligopoly of would-be corporate competitors organized quickly behind a secret unified effort to control political messaging. Two, it accelerated the evolution of digital censorship, moving it from judging truth and untruth to a new scarier model, openly focused on political narrative at the expense of fact. The beginning on February 5th, 2021, just after Joe Biden took office, Stanford wrote to Twitter to discuss the virality project. By the 17th, Twitter agreed to join and got its first weekly report on anti-vax disinformation, which contained numerous true stories. February 22nd, 2021, Stanford welcomed Twitter veterans like Yoel Roth and Brian Clark, instructing them on how to join the group JIRA system. You can watch the friendly welcome video here and he attaches a link. March 2nd, 2021. We are beginning to ramp up our notification process to platforms. In addition to the top seven platforms, VP soon gained visibility to alternative platforms such as Gab, Parler, Telegram, and Getter, near total surveillance of the social media landscape. And again, VP, not vice president, virality project. Through July of 2020, Twitter's internal guidance on COVID-19 required a story to be quote unquote demonstrably false or contain an or contain an assertion of fact to be actioned. But the virality project in partnership with the CDC pushed different standards. VP told Twitter that true stories that could fuel hesitancy, including things like celebrity deaths after vaccine or the closure of a central New York school due to reports of post-vaccine illness should be considered, quote, standard vaccine misinformation on your platform. In one email to Twitter, VP addressed what it called the, quote, vaccine passport narrative, saying concerns over such programs, quote, have driven a larger anti-vaccination narrative about the loss of rights and freedoms, end quote. This was framed as a misinformation event. VP routinely framed real testimonials about side effects as misinformation from true stories of blood clots from AstraZeneca vaccines to a New York Times story about vaccine recipients who contracted the blood disorder thrombocytopenia. By March of 2021, Twitter personnel were aping VP language, describing campaigns against vaccine passports fear of mandatory immunizations and misuse of official reporting tools as potential violations. This echoed a report to Twitter by the Global Engagement Center regarding Russia linked accounts, quote, while this account posts legitimate and accurate COVID-19 updates, it posts content that attacks Italian politicians, the EU and the United States. So you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to express those opinions and say that governments are handling things wrong, even though you're making true claims about the underlying subject matter. That same GEC report found in the Twitter files identified former Italian prime minister Giuseppe Conti and former Italian Democratic Party secretary Nicola Zingaretti, who's been compared to Bernie Sanders as highly connective accounts in a Russia linked network. The Virality Project helped pioneer the gauging of disinformation by audience response. If the post-vaccine death of a black woman named Dreen Keys in Virginia inspired mostly anti-vaccine comments on local media, it became a disinformation event. VP warned against people just asking questions, implying it was a tactic commonly used by spreaders of misinformation. It's also a tactic commonly used by people trying to figure out what the hell is going on in a world full of authoritative voices lying to them. It also described a worldwide rally for freedom planned over Telegram as a disinformation event. Almost always reportable, in quotes. It encouraged platforms to target people, not posts, using minority report style pre-crime logic. Describing repeat offenders like Robert Kennedy Jr., it spoke of a large volume of content that is almost always reportable. 
So basically, anyone who is involved in regular counter narrative dissent gets flagged as being almost always reportable. And then their posts get special treatment by the censorship regime. I kind of hope that I reach the status of being almost always reportable. That would kind of be a badge of honor. VP was repeatedly extravagantly wrong. In one email to Twitter on misinformation, it spoke of wanting to hone in on an increasingly popular narrative about natural immunity. Can't be talking about natural immunity, not when you're trying to sell a vaccine while claiming that the vaccine is going to get you to herd immunity, even though the vaccine that isn't a vaccine can't prevent transmission or infection. So herd immunity would be impossible. The VP in April 2021 mistakenly described breakthrough infections as, quote, extremely rare events that should not be inferred to mean vaccines are ineffective. And remember that when we used to call them breakthrough infections, as if the vaccine was preventing some of the other ones when that never happened. Later, when the CDC changed its methodology for counting COVID-19 cases among vaccinated people only counting those resulting in hospitalization or death, VP complained that anti-vaccine accounts like RFK Jr. and an account called What's Her Face retweeted the story to suggest hypocrisy. A few months later, breakthrough cases are happening and they are of serious concern. In a chilling irony, the VP ran searches for the term surveillance state as an unaccountable state partner bureaucracy secretly searched it out, the idea that, quote, vaccines are part of a surveillance state won its own thought crime bucket, conspiracy. After about a year on April 26, 2022, the VP issued a report calling for a, quote, rumor control mechanism to address nationally trending narratives and a, quote, misinformation and disinformation center of excellence to be housed within CISA at the Department of Homeland Security. The next day, April 27th, 2022, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas announced in a House Appropriations Subcommittee hearing that a disinformation governance board had been created to be headed by the singing censor Nina Jankowitz. And we certainly covered that last year. Even in its final report, VP claimed it was misinformation to suggest the vaccine does not prevent transmission or that governments are planning to introduce vaccine passports. Both things turned out to be true. The virality project was specifically not based on, quote, assertions of fact, but public submission to authority, acceptance of narrative and pronouncements by figures like Anthony Fauci. The project's central and animating concept was you can't handle the truth. One of its four core partners, Pentagon-funded Graphica, explained in a report about Fauci, and it's spelled Fauci, X-I, as in Xi, the president of China, that because the public cannot be trusted to make judgments on its own, it must be shielded from truths that might undermine its faith and authority. This continual process of seeding doubt and uncertainty in authoritative voices Graphica wrote in a report sent to Twitter leads to a society that finds it too challenging to identify what's true or false. And it's worth remembering that a lot of the basis for this discussion is emails of Anthony Fauci's from 2020 that directly dispute the narrative he was out pushing on television. And those emails were actually around since mid 2021, at least. The media just completely ignored them. For this reason, the CDC partnered project focused often on disinformation events involving Fauci, saying, quote, release of Fauci's emails foments distrust and deriding assertions he misled the public. A Cleveland Clinic study showed previous infection offered the same immunity as the vaccine, but VP said discovery was subservient to narrative. Whether or not scientific consensus is changing, Natural immunity is a key narrative among anti-vaccine activists. Often true content. 
The Virality Project communications mirror those produced in the recent court case, Louisiana versus Biden, which showed Facebook admitting to the WHO that it, too, was censoring true content. From the start, Stanford explained the Virality Project would essentially continue the work of its 2020 Election Integrity Partnership. The same JIRA system from the EIP is up and running, they wrote. So they basically took the censorship system, the censorship regime, the part of it at Stanford, the Election Integrity Partnership, and they just transferred that infrastructure over to combating anti-vaccine narratives. And it's in this that you can see what the system is really designed to do. The system is designed to control what the public thinks. And many of our fellow citizens and our media outlets and corporate entities have encouraged all of this censorship because they hate Donald Trump so much. So it was okay to censor during 2020 because it was just that important. And then when 2021 came around and the election is over, well, we got to keep using this system, but it's totally justified because the vaccines are just that important. And so they censored true content that disputed the vaccine narrative. There's a death toll on that. And they've used the same censorship tactics when it comes to a range of other issues. There's a death toll on the whole Ukraine Russia thing, too. You have to wonder about how much different that would have looked. If people weren't banned and censored for the first nine months of that program in the last Twitter files thread, we posted a video of EIP director Alex Stamos describing that project as Stanford trying to, quote, fill the gap of things the government couldn't do legally. We also showed a video in which Stamos introduced EIP research director Renee DeResta as having worked for the CIA. DeResta in 2021 and 2022 would be listed as a Stanford scholar leading the Virality Project. And we went through those videos in the last Twitter files, so I'm not going to play them again. By October 2020, Stamos was hinting at the direction of the future Virality Project, telling a national cybersecurity conference that the anti-disinformation mission needed a new focus. We talk way too much about foreign. It's sexy and it's fun and it's a little bit cold warry, Stamos said, adding the vast majority of problems were now domestic. We have like an 80-20 breakdown. I think that needs to be flipped. VP's partners, DOD funded Graphica, the National Science Foundation funded Center for an Informed Public, the GEC funded DFR Lab, and the NYU Center for Social Media and Politics or CSMAP. VP would later say it partnered with several government agencies, including the Office of the Surgeon General and the CDC. It reportedly also worked with DHS's CISA and GEC, among others. To recap, America's information mission went from counterterrorism abroad to stopping foreign interference from reaching domestic audiences to 80% domestic content, much of it true. The disinformation governance board is out, but truth policing is not. And even in that, it's worth mentioning that the whole counterterrorism narrative and the foreign interference narrative are also just regime projects that they didn't want the American public to know about. This censorship and narrative control system is justified through its creation as a means of countering terrorism. And then it was turned back on the American people. But in hindsight, understanding the goals and motivations of the regime and what they have done around the world, there's also no reason to believe their original justification that any of this was ever about counterterrorism. What we have is a regime, a global regime on the verge of collapse that needs full narrative control to be able to survive. So they're trying to achieve full narrative control however they can, and they are still failing. Thank goodness. And finally, speaking of social media, Donald Trump's account was restored by Google on the YouTube platform last week. And then he actually posted on Facebook, letting people know that he's back. 
So very interesting timing with everything going on, including this potential arrest. Donald Trump has all of his channels back to be able to address the entire nation at one time. So things could get very interesting. Now, assuming we don't have arrest news tomorrow, I'll probably spend most of the episode on geopolitical affairs because there's a lot going on there as well. And I couldn't get to it today. But for now, I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!